Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Monday, January 8, 2024. The White House announces there will be a review of process and procedure that took place when Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin did not disclose for several days that he was in the hospital, as some Republicans in Congress are now calling for Secretary Austin to resign. House Speaker Mike Johnson, a Republican, and the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat, announced a top-line federal budget agreement which could lessen the chance of a federal government shutdown when current funding expires. The first deadline is January 19th. We'll get the details from CQ Roll Call budget reporter Aidan Quigley and hear from Senate and House members. President Joe Biden gives a campaign speech at the historic Black Church in Charleston, South Carolina, Mother Emanuel AME where there was a racist mass shooting in 2015. He denounces the poison of white supremacy and says the 2024 presidential election is a battle for truth and compares Republican presidential candidate and former President Donald Trump to defeated Confederate soldiers unable to accept the loss. We'll also hear from Donald Trump campaigning in Iowa. Secretary of State Antony Blinken continues his Middle East trip, speaking to reporters in Saudi Arabia before flying to Israel For meetings on the war with Hamas in Gaza, Secretary Blinken responding to reporters that Hezbollah says one of its top commanders has been killed in southern Lebanon and concerns about the war widening. And a Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court oral argument in a case about the U.S. government's no-fly list. A Muslim man was put on the list, then taken off, and wants to know why he was put on in the first place. The FBI is fighting that. From NBC News, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has come under scrutiny from a growing number of congressional lawmakers who are demanding answers after the Defense Department delayed informing administration officials, Congress, and the public about his hospitalization. The Pentagon waited three days after Austin arrived at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center to inform senior officials in the White House's National Security Council of Austin's condition, including that he spent four days in the intensive care unit. It was official, previously confirmed to NBC News. Austin's deputy, Kathleen Hicks, who was on vacation in Puerto Rico at the time, learned about his condition two days after she took over his duties, senior defense official told NBC News on Sunday. Various reports saying that Secretary Austin had elective medical procedure in late December, was hospitalized on January 1st, and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and President Biden made aware of this January 4th, the Pentagon telling the public January 5th. The spokesperson for the White House National Security Council, John Kirby, joined the White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre at a news conference aboard Air Force One. Is the level of frustration at the NSC about Secretary Austin not informing the White House until later about his hospitalization? And will there be any consequences for that? I think, uh, look, uh, our main focus right now is on Secretary Austin's health and uh, uh, making sure that he gets all the care and the support that he needs to uh, uh, to fully recover. That's the focus. Uh, and he has already resumed all his authorities. Um, he's already uh, uh, doing all of the functions he would normally do. He's just do- he's doing it right now uh, from, uh, from the hospital. Um, we'll, uh, we'll obviously, I think, as you might expect, uh, we'll take a look at uh, process and procedure here um, and uh, try to learn from this experience. And if there's some changes that need to be made uh, in terms of process and procedure, uh, we'll do that. There are some calls for him to be fired. 
Is that something that the president is wanting or considering doing? The president's number one focus is on his health and recovery, and he looks forward to having him back uh, at the Pentagon as soon as possible. Uh, the president uh, respects the fact that Secretary Austin took ownership for the lack of transparency. He also respects the amazing job he's done as defense secretary, and how he's handled multiple crises over the last almost three years now, um, and uh, very much values his advice, candor, leadership, uh, and again, looks forward to having him back in the does, does the president know what elective surgery the secretary had, even though the American people don't know? And does he know what his current symptoms are and his current health condition is? I know that the president had an opportunity to talk to Secretary Austin uh, a couple of days ago, wish him well, get uh, that conversation. And, uh, and I don't know the level of the president's personal knowledge of his medical uh, situation and that, that would really be between be between the, the two men. Uh, your your question about that elective procedure is really better directed to the Pentagon, not uh, not to us. I want to make sure I put a fork in my answer to you. There is no uh, uh, no plans for anything other than for Secretary Austin to stay in the job and continuing the leadership that he's been exude, that he's been demonstrating. John, you given, John, given the delay in disclosing this. Did Secretary Austin meet the president's own standard of transparency? And is the White House committed, if, if President Biden had to have some kind of medical procedure, is the White House committed to releasing that information to the public in a very timely manner? Well, on the second question, and you're a little out of my lane, that's really, but I, I, I don't want to speak for Kareem, but I think the answer is yes. I mean, the answer is absolutely yes. We'll be as transparent as possible. The president has always put transparency at the center of his administration from the beginning, and obviously that's what we're going to continue to do. So we're going to continue to be transparent. Uh, obviously, the Department of Defense will have more about more to speak to about their protocol. Uh, I just don't have anything to add uh, specifically on that piece. Do you think you were transparent here, though? I mean, it took days for this yeah. for this for people to be informed about this at a time of you know conflict around the world. The Pentagon has talked about this. The secretary put out a statement, took accountability for the lack of transparency. We'll let you, we'll let the Pentagon speak to the process there. John Kirby, Strategic Communications Coordinator for the White House National Security Council and White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre with reporters on Air Force One. Defense Secretary Austin did put out that statement on Saturday. He said he could have done a better job ensuring the public was appropriately informed. And he wrote, I commit to doing better. Secretary Austin is 70 years old. He is sixth in line in the presidential succession. Air Force Times reports that Air Force Major General Pat Ryder, the Pentagon press secretary, said Monday that Secretary Austin's chief of staff was out with the flu early last week when she learned the news and did not make any moves to notify parties outside Secretary Austin's immediate team until she was returned to work on Thursday, which was January 4th. The House Republican Conference Chair, Lee Stefanik, Republican from New York, posting today, This concerning lack of transparency exemplifies a shocking lack of judgment and a significant national security threat. There must be full accountability, beginning with the immediate resignation of Secretary Austin and those that lied for him and a congressional investigation into this dangerous dereliction of duty. Congresswoman Kat Kamek, Republican from Florida, was interviewed on Fox News today about Secretary Austin. 
leave it to the Biden administration to take something routine like an elective surgery, which happens often uh, with members of Congress, with members of the administration, and botch it. I mean, this mm. is dangerous competence. It's not just incompetence. It's not just a lack of transparency. It is dangerous because not only it, which has been pointed out multiple times, are our men and women in uniform and our military installations abroad under constant attack, particularly in the Middle East. But there is a heightened level of engagement around the globe. And when you have the Secretary of Defense, sixth in command, out of commission, his deputy not even knowing that he himself is out, uh, out of out of commission in the ICU and on vacation. I mean, this is absurd. This just is another example as to why actions have consequences. And I go back to the 117th Congress, Harris, when there was a vote under Speaker Pelosi to grant a waiver to allow Austin to become Secretary of Defense. Now, the rationale back then was, well, you know, it's been done before, so we should do it again. I was proud that I voted against granting hmm. Austin that he should have never been Secretary of Defense because he was a failed commander when he was in control of Central Command. In fact, when I was at the Naval War College, he was a case study in failures of leadership. We've known back then, and he has demonstrated whether it was then with the botched Afghanistan withdrawal or now his lack of communication, he is not fit to be the Secretary of Defense. Congresswoman Kat Kamek, Republican from Florida, today on the Fox News Channel. This is Washington Today. From the Washington Post, congressional leaders reached a $1.66 trillion agreement Sunday to finance the federal government in 2024, preserving funding for key domestic and social safety net programs despite GOP demands to cut the budget. Now lawmakers are up against a stiff deadline to pass legislation to codify the deal and avert a partial government shutdown in less than two weeks. Funding runs out for roughly 20 percent of the budget, including for essential programs such as some veterans assistance and food and drug safety services on January 19th. And money for the rest of the government runs out shortly after that on February 2nd. That was from the Washington Post. The budget deal announced by the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat, and House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican. C-SPAN spoke about the deal this morning with Aidan Quigley, budget and appropriations reporter for CQ Roll Call. It's nice to start the year with some good appropriations news. You know, we have a top-line agreement, which is a big step forward. Uh, essentially, it includes the spending levels that were agreed upon last summer during the debt limit negotiation. There were some changes, which Republicans are saying are wins. They got an additional $16 billion in clawbacks of previously appropriated money, which would be COVID money and, and IRS enforcement dollars. Um, Democrats are saying that on the IRS front that that's just money that would have been taken back next year anyway. So there's a little bit of a debate over that. But essentially, we have a deal. Appropriators can get to work. And that's good news for the appropriations process. Break it down for defense spending, non-defense spending here. Yeah, so the, the deal includes $886.3 billion in defense spending and $772.7 in non-defense spending. Uh, so that's like about a 3% increase from last year on the defense side and about flat on the non-defense side, which is what, again, this, this was hammered out uh, over the summer. But obviously, we've been on a lengthy journey since then in this process to get to where we are today with a handful of short-term stopgap spending measures and the 
overthrow of the Speaker McCarthy, who negotiated this deal, so it wasn't entirely clear where we would land. But essentially, we are back where we were over the summer, although there are some changes to the package, which Republicans are are happy about. At least Speaker Johnson is, is heralding as a win. Well, that's the question. So how does this deal that was announced yesterday by the leadership, how is it going over with the rank and file members? Uh, where are the potential avenues where this could be held up? Yeah, so, so that's, that's a really good question. So, of course, if House Freedom Caucus, they want bigger spending cuts, they are unhappy with this deal. But I think if you look, you look at the coalition, you know, that will be needed to pass this legislation, they are not uh, part of it. They have voted against, a, you know, short-term stopgap measures. Um, but, uh, of course, with such a slight majority on the Republican conference, Johnson has, you know, not a lot of... Uh, wiggle room to, you know, move forward as a leader if if there's like wide opposition among Republicans. So it will be interesting to see where uh, many Republicans fall. But kind of the usual suspects of the Freedom Caucus are, are unhappy about the overall spending level, just like they were at the time of the debt limit deal. Is there an early whip count on this? Is this one of those bills uh, that could potentially get more Democratic votes? in the Republican-controlled House than Republican votes. What's your prediction at this point? It will almost definitely, 98% chance, 99, 100. I don't know that it will receive more Democratic votes because if you just look back at the previous continuing resolutions, you know, it, it's clear that Democrats, are, House Democrats are gonna carry this barring some kind of major uh, shift from from what we've seen in the past. So I think it's pretty clear that Democrats will uh, will carry this forward. And then in quickly, uh, in terms of time frame here, we're looking at a January 19th government funding deadline. That's the first of two. The second one hits in early February. Will there be enough time to go through all the legislative hoops and get this signed by the president before those deadlines hit? Or is it possible they'll need another stopgap measure to buy more time for this process to play out. Yeah, so there's not enough time for them to get done uh, by the first deadline in mid-January. So they will need another stopgap spending measure, which w will be a little tricky, but with Democrats on board, you, you think that should be, it should be able to pass uh, pretty clearly. I, I will caution that this top line agreement is an important first step, but there is a lot of work to do, including the normal work of negotiating the bills, which, you know, will take four to six, six, six weeks to get to the finish line. So that's that's a decent amount of time. But also this agreement is a little different in which typically around this time they have an agreement on policy riders, which is what policies are included in the package. There was no agreement at this point on that topic. So. That's going to be another really tough negotiation, especially as Johnson faces criticism from the Freedom Caucus. You know, Chip Roy yesterday was saying that he wants to wait and see where they land on policy riders before, you know, making kind of a, you know, he's unhappy with the spending levels. But he said, let's look and see what we get on the policy rider front. So that's going to be kind of a really hard negotiation that, you know, uh, this deal allows appropriators to get to work, but there's still a lot more to be done and a lot more negotiating to be done, especially on the policy matters front. Aiden Quickly, budget and appropriations reporter for CQ Roll Call on C-SPAN's morning program, Washington Journal, Monday morning. 
The House Representatives returns from the holiday recess on Tuesday. The Senate was back today, and the Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, spoke on the Senate floor about this budget deal. I have excellent news on government funding. Yesterday, I announced with Speaker Johnson that congressional leaders have reached a top-line agreement for government funding for the 2024 fiscal year. When we began our negotiations, our goal was to preserve a non-defense funding level of $772 billion, the same level agreed to in our debt ceiling deal last June. And that $772 billion was precisely the number we reached. Not a nickel, not a nickel was cut. Again, our goal was 772, and that's precisely the number we reached in this bipartisan agreement. The agreement now clears the way for Congress to act in the coming weeks to avoid a government shutdown, while also preserving key domestic programs that benefit millions of Americans. The framework agreement will enable the appropriators to address many of the major challenges America faces at home and abroad. It also allows us to keep the investments for hardworking American families that congressional Democrats and President Biden secured through our legislative agenda. And, Madam President, both parties reached this agreement without, without resorting to the painful and draconian cuts that the hard right, particularly those in the Freedom Caucus, clamored for. The hard right wanted to put a chopping block on programs that help millions of Americans. So I'm happy to say that Democrats protected vital priorities like housing programs, veterans benefits, health care, nutrition programs, small business support, the National Health Sound, the NHS, and funding for federal law enforcement. And I'm particularly pleased that we will protect the historic climate investment Democrats passed in the Inflation Reduction Act. The hard right wanted to use the appropriations process to undo our climate investments. Democrats said no, and we held the line. The hard right also wanted to make cuts to the IRS so that the ultra-rich tax cheats could weasel their way out of paying their fair share. By keeping the cuts at $20 billion, I'm happy to say this agreement will not affect the IRS's ability to keep holding the richest tax cheats accountable. Remember, when Democrats passed the Inflation Reduction Act, we gave the IRS new tools to audit the richest of the rich who don't pay their fair share. All these tools will remain in place. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, today on the Senate floor. Senator Mike Lee, Republican from Utah, responding, reposting Senator Schumer's remarks, adding this, we're approaching $35 trillion in debt, and Americans feel it every time they pay for, well, anything, but not a nickel was cut. Good for us. We thank the Republicans who so eagerly agreed to fund Democratic priorities without even demanding that Biden first enforce the border. And the House Freedom Caucus Twitter account or X account has this. It's even worse than we thought. Don't believe the spin. Once you break through typical Washington math, the true total programmatic spending level is $1.658 trillion, not $1.59 trillion. This is a total failure. Congressman Greg Murphy, Republican from North Carolina, was interviewed about the budget deal on Fox News Channel today. He says he plans to support it. Because he says parts of the government that it will fund are not the ones where needed savings will be coming from. 
We elect our leaders to lead, and um, we we got rid of one of our uh, our members with Kevin McCarthy, the Freedom Caucus did, or members thereof, and uh, now we have Mike Johnson. Mike is a very, very competent and uh, very, very uh, good conservative, and if you don't let your leaders lead, then you end up in chaos. And so it just gets to be the point now where um, how much can you just say no and, be, and remain to be credible if you say no, no, no know when everything's a failure and you're against everything, you lose credibility. We have to let our leaders lead. And if you look at the long term, if you look at the real big picture here, Maria, this 15% of spending is really not going to move the needle. Until we reform mandatory spending, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, those are the things that are going to uh, reform spending. Fighting over these 15% of things just to make your, uh, take your excuse me, take your basketball and go home because you don't get everything you want, loses your, uh, loses your credibility and yeah. then really doesn't help the cause. We end well, up with I more bipartisan bills that way than anything else. Congressman Greg Murphy, Republican from North Carolina, today on Fox News Channel. In a letter Sunday announcing the budget agreement, the top line agreement, Speaker Mike Johnson wrote that the agreement will not satisfy everyone and does not cut as much spending as many of us would like. But he called it the most favorable budget agreement Republicans have achieved in over a decade. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican from Georgia, posting today, I am a no on the Johnson-Schumer budget deal. The $1.6 trillion budget agreement does nothing to secure the border, stop the invasion, or stop the weaponized government targeting Biden's political enemies and innocent Americans. President Biden put out a statement on this agreement when it was announced on Sunday, saying it reflects the funding levels that I negotiated with both parties and signed into law last spring. It rejects deep cuts to programs hardworking families count on and provides a path to passing full-year funding bills that deliver for the American people and are free of any extreme policies. And the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, asked about it by reporters as they flew on Air Force One. There was a spending top lines agreement over the weekend. What is the administration's current view on whether a shutdown can be avoided uh, in a couple of weeks? So let me just say a couple of things since this just happened, right, over the weekend. and just want to be on the record here. So, so the uh, bipartisan funding framework congressional leaders have reached moves us one step uh, closer to preventing a needless uh, government shutdown and protecting important national priorities. The framework reflects the funding levels negotiated as part of the bipartisan budget agreement and rejects deep cuts to programs hardworking families count on, and it provides a path to pass to passing full year uh, full year funding bills that deliver for the American people and are free of any extreme policies. Now it is for congressional Republicans; they have to do their jobs. They must do their jobs and stop threatening to shut down the government and fulfill their basic responsibility to fund critical domestic and national security priorities, including uh, the president's supplemental request. It's time for them to act. And so that's what we expect as far as the process and how this moves forward. That is a, certainly a congressional leaders. Uh, we leave it to the congressional leaders to, to figure out how this legislative process is going to be. But look, and we have said this over and over again, this is their basic duty when it comes to Congress and keeping the government open and funded. This is something that they are responsible for and they should not play politics uh, with this. This is These are programs that the American people rely on. And so we, they have to get this done. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre with reporters flying with the president on Air Force One.
From TheHill.com, the top-line numbers are separate from a supplemental spending request from the White House on additional aid for Ukraine and Israel. A bipartisan group of senators have been negotiating a deal to pair border and immigration policy changes with aid to Ukraine. Also today, the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas making a visit to the U.S.-Mexico border in Eagle Pass, Texas. This comes ahead of the House Homeland Security Committee considering the impeachment of Secretary Mayorkas that's scheduled for Wednesday. On Wall Street today, the Dow up 216, Nasdaq up 319, S&P up 66. From the New York Times, Boeing's share price fell sharply on Monday in the first trading session after part of the fuselage of one of its 737 MAX 9 jets blew out on an Alaska Airlines flight on Friday night. And from CNBC, United Airlines said Monday it found loose bolts on door plugs of several Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes during inspections spurred when the panel on that type blew out during an Alaska Airlines flight. At 16,000 feet last week, the Federal Aviation Administration on Saturday grounded dozens of 737 MAX 9s after that panel blew up midnight on Alaska Flight 1282, calling for inspections. And from Bloomberg News, the EPA on Monday announced nearly $1 billion in grant funding for clean school buses across the U.S., enough to help school districts buy more than 2,000 700 buses. The plan touches 280 school districts in 37 states, including battleground states like Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Michigan, helping sell the Biden administration's agenda in the walk-up to the 2024 election. That was from Bloomberg News. Administrator Michael Regan was at Stone Mountain Middle School today in Stone Mountain, Georgia, making the announcement. Every single day, millions of children across this country ride the yellow school bus to and from school. And for many, it's that quintessential childhood experience. But we also know that traditional school buses that our students rely on are driven by internal combustion engines that emit toxic pollutions into the air. Not only are these pollutants harmful to the environment, but they can also be harmful to people's health. To the children who ride the bus, to the bus drivers responsible for the transportation, and for the folks in the surrounding community. Earlier today, I was proud to announce that EPA has selected 67 applicants to receive nearly $1 billion. That's billion with a B. $1 billion through our first Clean School Bus Program grant competition. And of that $1 billion, thanks to Senator Warnock, Congressman Johnson, Congressman Williams, and others, $60 million, nearly $60 million of that will land right here in the state of Georgia. EPA Administrator Michael Regan at a middle school in Stone Mountain, Georgia. The $1 billion is the second round of funding from the $5 billion in the 2021 infrastructure law. And from a Washington Post article about this announcement, Several states have forged ahead with plans for phasing out diesel buses. In 2021, Maryland passed a law requiring all new purchased school buses to be electric by 2025. And in October, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed, a, signed similar legislation with requirements that will take effect in 2035. And in New York, will bar school districts from buying diesel-burning school buses starting in 2027. Washington Today continues in a moment. We want to take a minute to ask for your help. 
Your financial support will ensure that C-SPAN can continue to produce podcasts that inform you about national politics, introduce you to the latest nonfiction books, and provide valuable historical context to today's news. Make a donation today and be a part of C-SPAN's future. Visit c-span.org donate. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app, which is free, and wherever you find your podcasts. A few more headlines. Mitch Landrieu, White House Senior Advisor and Infrastructure Implementation Coordinator, is leaving the White House to join President Biden's re-election campaign as national co-chair. He's also a former mayor of New Orleans, a Democrat. House Republicans have released a resolution recommending that Hunter Biden, son of the president, be held in contempt of Congress for defying a subpoena for closed-door testimony. The House Oversight Committee will be voting on this resolution on Wednesday. The chair, James Comer, writing a report that accompanies the resolution. Mr. Biden's flagrant defiance, he writes, of the committee's deposition subpoenas while choosing to appear nearby on the Capitol grounds to read a prepared statement on the same matter is contemptuous, and he must be held accountable for his unlawful actions. On the campaign trail, this from the New York Times, Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina, the oldest AME church in the South, will forever be associated with former President Barack Obama because of his memorable and melodic eulogy for the nine victims of a racist massacre in its fellowship hall in June 2015. But it is Joseph R. Biden Jr. who became the first sitting president to speak at the Story Church when he delivered a campaign address there Monday about threats to American democracy, including those posed by political and heat-fueled violence. The Biden's campaign choice of Emanuel was intended to show common cause with black voters, who polls suggest have lost a measure of enthusiasm for the president. South Carolina, where African-Americans make up about 60 percent of the Democratic electorate, host the party's first of the nation primary on February 3rd. Reporting from the New York Times, here's President Biden at the church in Charleston. After the Civil War, the defeated Confederates couldn't accept the verdict of the war. They had lost. So they say they embraced what's known as the lost cause, a self-serving lie that the Civil War is not about slavery, but about states' rights. They've called that the noble cause. That was a lie, a lie that had not just a lie, but it had terrible consequences. It brought on Jim Crow. So let me be clear for those who don't seem to know, slavery was the cause of the Civil War. There is no negotiation about that. Now, now we're living in an era of a second lost cause. Once again, there are some in this country trying, trying to turn a loss into a lie. A lie which, if allowed to live, will once again bring terrible damage to this country. This time, the lie is about the 2020 election. The election which you made, your voices heard, and your power known. Just two days ago, we marked the third anniversary of the dark, one of the darkest days in American history, January the 6th. The day in which insurrectionists stormed the United States Capitol, trying for the first time in American history to stop the peaceful transfer of power in the country. We all saw with our own eyes the truth of what happened. That violent mob was whipped up by lies from a defeated former president, smashing windows, smearing blood on statues, 
ransacking offices. Outside, insurrectionists erected gallows, chanting, hang Mike Pence. Inside, they hunted for Nancy Pelosi, chanting, where's Nancy? We saw something on January 6th we'd never seen before, even during the Civil War. Insurrectionists waving Confederate flags inside the halls of Congress built by enslaved Americans. A mob attacked and called black officers, black veterans, defending the nation those vile of racist names. And yet, an extreme movement of America, the MAGA Republicans, led by a defeated president, is trying to steal history now. They tried to steal an election, now they're trying to steal history, telling us that violent mob was, and I quote, a peaceful protest. President Joe Biden, part of a re-election campaign speech at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina today. This follows his speech on Friday near Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, also focused on the third anniversary of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol and threats to democracy. And Donald Trump, former president and leading contender for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. Donald Trump over the weekend has been campaigning across Iowa, which will hold the first of the nation Republican presidential caucuses on January 15th. On Friday, he spoke in Sioux Center, Iowa, and referenced President Biden's speech in Pennsylvania about democracy. Biden's record is an unbroken streak of weakness, incompetence, corruption, and failure. Other than that, he's doing quite well, isn't he, don't you? That's a hell of a list. That's a hell of a list, right? That's why Crooked Joe is staging his pathetic, fear-mongering campaign event in Pennsylvania today. Did you see him? He was stuttering through the whole thing. He's going, uh, I'm gonna, he's a threat to democracy. I'm a threat. They've weaponized government. He's saying, I'm a threat to democracy. He's a threat to da, da, democracy. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Couldn't read the word. He's a threat to democracy. You know how bad the press is? You know what they do? They take me saying that like that. And they say, Trump couldn't say the word democracy. <laughs> Look. No, that's what they do. They're so bad. You know, I don't know if you saw it. I was on Sean Hannity, a good guy, really good guy, right? And we did a town hall, and he says, tell us, you're not going to be a dictator, right? I said, Sean, I'm going to be a dictator for one day, for drilling and for closing the border. And after that, I'm not going to be a dictator. So, so remember the way I said, I'm going to be a dictator for one day for those two things, and then after that, I'm not going to be. So I said, I'm going to be a dictator for one day, for drilling, right? For drilling, and then, so what do they do? What do they do? We say, drilling and the border. Then I go, and then after that, I'm not going to be a dictator, Sean, one day. So they have me on the news all over the place. I'm going to be a dictator, cut! <laughs> they, did you see that? This is the fake news media. They have the first part, I'm going to be a dictator. Cut! And they had to cut it fast because I kept it going fast because I know exactly what they do. Former President Donald Trump, 2024 Republican presidential candidate on Friday in Sioux Center, Iowa. A story from the Iowa Capitol Dispatch. Republican Party of Iowa Chairman Jeff Kaufman said Monday he expects a robust turnout at the 2024 Iowa caucuses despite the first blast of winter bearing down on the state a week before the event. However, Kaufman said the weather could get in the way of breaking the 2016 record 
of 186,000 caucus participants. Returning to President Biden's campaign speech at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, at one point he was interrupted by pro-Palestinian activists calling for a ceasefire in the war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. The truth is under assault in America. As a consequence, so is our freedom, our democracy, our very country, because without the truth, there's no light. Without light, there's no path from this darkness. If you really care about the lives lost here, you should honor the lives lost and call for a ceasefire in Palestine. Ceasefire now! 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 That's all right. 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 their passion and I've been quietly working I've been quietly working with the Israeli government to get them to reduce and significantly get out of Gaza using all that I can to do but I understand the passion look folks after the civil Thank you. President Biden in Charleston, South Carolina, at the Mother Emanuel AME Church. Secretary of State Antony Blinken continues his trip to the Middle East. He's already visited Turkey, Greece, Jordan, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia, and today spoke to reporters at the airport in Saudi Arabia as he was heading to Israel. We're heading now to Israel, where I'll have an opportunity to share with Israeli leaders everything I've heard thus far. Uh, on this trip, and also to talk to them uh, about the future direction of their military campaign in Gaza. Uh, I will press on the absolute imperative to do more to protect civilians, and to do more to make sure that humanitarian assistance is getting into the hands of those who need it. We'll also, of course, focus on our relentless efforts to bring back the hostages, Americans, Israelis, and others. And we'll talk about how we see the future for the region and for Israel. And I'm convinced that there is a future path that can actually bring lasting peace and security for Israel, that can ensure that October 7th never happens again, and that can bring the region together, that can meet the aspirations of the Palestinian people, um, and do it in a way that makes this a region focused on the future, not on the challenges of the past. With that, 
happy to take a couple of questions. Ian? Secretary, your trip is partly about trying to prevent a wider war, but Israel has now killed two Hezbollah leaders within a week. What does that say about U.S. leverage over Israel, and doesn't that risk a second front? And secondly, uh, Qatari Prime Minister Al-Khani yesterday said military strikes against the Houthis were not the best option and that he preferred uh, diplomacy since the military strikes would raise regional tensions. What message are you giving to Arab partners in the region about U.S. and coalition efforts uh, and intentions towards potential military strikes in Yemen? Well, first, Ian, with regard to, uh, to Lebanon, it's clearly not in the interest of anyone, Israel, Lebanon, Hezbollah, for that matter, uh, to, see this, uh, to see this escalate and to see an actual conflict. And the Israelis have been very clear with us that they want to find a diplomatic way forward, a diplomatic way forward that creates the kind of security that allows Israelis to return home. Nearly 100,000 Israelis have been forced to leave their homes in northern Israel because of the threat uh, coming from uh, Hezbollah and Lebanon, but also allows Lebanese uh, to return to their homes in southern Lebanon. And we're working intensely on that effort um, and doing so diplomatically. Second, with regard to, to the Red Sea, um, the international community as a whole faces a challenge. These attacks, consistent attacks by the Houthis on international shipping, um, are a threat to everyone. We talked about this all, uh, yesterday. You've got about 15% of the world's commerce every day going through that, that strait, going through the Red Sea. And these attacks are having a real effect on, on the prices that people have to pay for food, for medicine, for energy. Ships have to get diverted to other places. Insurance rates go up. And the basic principle of freedom of navigation is what's at stake. So the international community has a real stake in upholding uh, that principle. As I said, we've had 40 countries come together to make clear that what the Houthis are doing has to stop. And we have other countries that have made clear that if it continues, uh, there have to be consequences. So our strong view, our strong preference is that the Houthis get the message that they're receiving from countries around the world that this needs to stop. And that's what we're focused on. Secretary of State Antony Blinken on the tarmac in Saudi Arabia flying to Israel story from NBC News. The United States is being blamed by the Arab public along with Israel for the mounting civilian death toll in Gaza. Leaders in the Middle East have warned Secretary of State Antony Blinken on his diplomatic tour this week, according to multiple senior administration officials, diplomatic sources, and congressional officials. The U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments today in a case involving the federal government's no-fly list. Scripps News explains that the case involves Jonas Fikri, a Muslim man who was not allowed to board a flight from Sweden to the U.S. due to being placed on the government's no-fly list. The Council on American-Islamic Relations claims that Fikri was placed on the no-fly list after refusing to be an informant to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. When he refused, he was tortured and imprisoned in the United Arab Emirates at the behest of American officials and then stranded in Sweden because of his status on the no-fly list, Care alleges. One year after being denied access to the flight, he was charged with conspiracy to structure monetary transfers. Those federal charges, however, were later dismissed. He was removed from the no-fly list after a years-long legal battle. Lawyers for Fickery argue that he could be placed on the no-fly list again without a fair process to fight the flight ban. The argument before the federal court is whether the case is moot. A district court agreed with the government that the case was moot, but in two separate instances, an appeals court allowed the case to proceed. The FBI appealed the lower court's ruling to the Supreme Court. 
That's the background from a Scripps News article. Here is the case, FBI Vickery, part of it, with Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan questioning Sopen Joshi, assistant to the U.S. Solicitor General. How can someone tell you that they're not going to engage in a terrorist activity if they don't know what terrorist activity it is that you claim they did? How can I reasonably be expected to say I'm not going to do X when I don't know what X is? Again, it's, I don't think it's reasonable to expect anyone to pose a threat of engaging in international terrorism. I mean, Mr. Joshi, you're, you're, you're arguing the merits of the case. You obviously think that you have good reasons for putting people on the list. And, um, uh, uh, you know, on the other hand, the, the, the suit, the whole gravamen of the complaint, is that you were not using good reasons, and we can't decide the merits of the case. I think that Justice Sotomayor's hypothetical is an extremely important one because it really asks, what does this declaration commit you to? The declaration clearly says that you can't use any facts that you uh, know of now. So any facts that have happened in the past cannot be used to um, to relist um, Mr. Fikra. Um, but the question that she's asking is, if he does the same kinds of things, if he meets with the same kinds of people, if he associates uh, with the same kinds of organizations, can those same kinds of activities that put him on the list before put him on the list again? And I do think that you have to give a kind of yes or no answer to that question so that we can figure out what this declaration does and does not commit you to. Yeah, I, so if you want a yes or no answer, my answer is yes, because... Guess what? Yes, it, back you... On. Yes, you can put him back on. Correct. For the same kinds of activities. For the same kinds of yes, because a repetition of conduct carries different significance from uh, just initially engaging in it once and perhaps even renouncing it, right? A repetition carries a different significance, and that has to be true in the, in the national security space. Sopan Joshi, assistant to the U.S. Solicitor General, being questioned by Supreme Court Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan in the oral argument in today's case, FBI v. FICRA. And you can find the full oral argument about the government's no-fly list at our website at cspan.org. An article from Thomson Reuters with some other news about the court writes, The U.S. Supreme Court Monday rejected a request by Elon Musk's ex-corporation, the social media company formerly known as Twitter, to consider whether it can publicly disclose how often federal law enforcement seeks information about users for national security investigations. The justice declined to hear X's appeal of a lower court's ruling holding that the FBI's restrictions on what the company could say publicly about the investigations did not violate its free speech rights under the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter, Word for Word. It's free. And get the stories making headlines in Washington emailed to you every day. You can subscribe at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night. 